This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few moments, criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group returns to our show to update us all on the new changes to Canada's DUI laws and how to cope with them when it's your turn to be pulled over at the side of the road. In our next hour, John Carlson returns for his first appearance of the year with a local real estate market update and lots more on the 1% Realty story. But first, here are some of the top consumers consumer stories we're working on this week. This season's flu vaccine appears to be highly effective, reducing the risk of infection with the dominant flu strain by more than 70%, far better than what was seen with last year's shots, says a mid-season analysis, analysis rather published online Thursday in the journal Eurosurveillance, showing this year's flu vaccine is 72% effective in preventing infection with the H1N1 respiratory virus overall across all ages groups. This good news, says Dr. Danutis Goronsky of the BC Centre for Disease Control, considering that the efficacy of last year's shot was, well, less than 20% due primarily to a mismatch between the vaccine and the strain that prevailed. Dr. Skoronsky says we're past the peak here and we're on the downslope, but even on the downslope of the epidemic curve, there will be activity for several more weeks, so it is not too late for people who were not vaccinated to get their shots, especially in regions still seeing rising cases. Last season, just 38% of Canadian adults got a flu shot. A couple of stories here about Canada Goose, makers of expensive and very warm winter duds. First, we heard of people being robbed at gunpoint, not of their wallets, but of their jackets in cities like Chicago this week, suggesting huge popularity in the brand, right? Well, in the same week, Canada Goose stock has dropped by nearly 10%, which suggests exactly the opposite. So what gives? Both stories are true, but the fall in stock price is due to a poor forecast for the brand's future in China, where we're seeing an economic slowdown. Plus, over the holiday shopping season, even Google searches and Instagram engagement were down for Canada Goose quite a bit. Combine that with slower demand in Europe, and things aren't looking as rosy for Canada Goose for 2019. The company will announce third quarter results in just a couple of weeks. No word on burglar-proofing their garments yet. Apple isn't content with its mobile devices being used for communication, entertainment, and work. It also wants them to double as health devices. And we've already seen this in the Apple Watch, which includes an electrical heart sensor and can detect falls. However, a newly discovered patent reveals Apple intends to go much further to protect iDevice owners. Now, the patent was filed back in the summer of 17, and it details a tiny sensor that can be embedded in a device and then used to test for the presence of specific dangerous gases. It's unclear when or even if this patent will actually turn into a real feature, but a second patent suggests Apple is really serious about making this work everywhere. The second patent covers adding different types of sensors into audio components such as speaker, which opens the way for MacBooks and the iMac to feature sensors and therefore allowing for more coverage. We'll keep an eye on this one. Sweethearts, those chalky little candles with the messages on them, won't be on store shelves this Valentine's Day. I know, 
Oh, the New England Confectionery Company had been making the popular candy since 1886, uh, but they filed for bankruptcy last spring and they were bought out by a company from Ohio named Spangler Candies. So Spangler said last Thursday they didn't have time to bring sweethearts to market this Valentine's season. The CEO saying they want to be sure they're their sweethearts, quote, meet customer expectations. Okay, when they return to market, he didn't say what changes they plan to make or when they'll go on sale. They really are chalky. <laughs> but they're unbelievably popular at this time of the year, too. Oh, well, looks like even more chocolates for Valentine's Day this year. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at a few more later in the show. Coming right up, defense lawyer Kyla Lee with more on our new DUI laws and the strange case of the drug dog who wouldn't quite sit down. And we'll open up our phone lines, too. Stay with us. This is Vancouver Consumer, and you're on 980 CKNW. And welcome back to the program this cloudy, warm Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group here in Vancouver. Welcome back, Kyla. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, I've got to ask you this because now we've had these new, um, improved, some would say, uh, impaired driving laws across Canada. This is one of your specialties as a defense lawyer. And it's only been now on the books for uh, less than two months. How's biz? Have you getting any calls as a result of this new? And has there been a noticeable uptick in roadside activity, period? We've definitely been getting a lot of calls from people who are concerned that they've been captured under the laws. And we have, particularly with the roadside random breath testing, seen a significant number of files flowing from that, which actually surprised me. And now this is the breath, the breath testing using the uh, the new machine that the Vancouver City Police have decided not to employ. So it would be in jurisdictions around Metro Vancouver. This is the Drager 5000 breathalyzer that they're bringing in for pot? Oh, no. We haven't in British Columbia anywhere used the Drager Drug Test 5000. No oh, police really? forces in BC are using it at all. Nobody's uh, using it. No, it's been uh, deployed a little bit in some other provinces. Manitoba, I think, was the first. Saskatchewan's just hitting the roads now. Um, but in British Columbia, so far, everybody's said, we're going to hold off on this. Interesting. So uh, the police chief in Vancouver said, no, thanks. And everybody else pretty much fell in line behind him. Yes, and uh, the BC RCMP are looking at deploying it, but the amount of time that it takes for training the RCMP members, purchasing the equipment and having it hit the roads is stalling that. And then I don't know whether the officers are actually going to be keen about using it once it gets in their hands. Interesting stuff. And of course, now we're having a very mild, lovely winter down here in Metro Vancouver. It's what, six or seven degrees right now. Uh, but this this gear, this particular device doesn't work well below. Is it plus or minus four Celsius? Yes, plus four it's Celsius. It's plus four yeah. Celsius, which in Canada, well, we spend many months of the year below plus four Celsius. Yep. And uh, I mean, across Canada, in the places where they're using it, it's not rising above four degrees Celsius right now at any part of the day. So it's very surprising to see that the places that have adopted this technology are places where it's going to be the least effective. 
And interesting because, uh, and a criminal defense lawyer in those provinces probably just salivating at the opportunity to go, come on, take a look at this piece of gear. Seriously, I don't care how much it costs and how much they love it in Europe. This is Canada. Come on. Yeah. And hasn't hasn't come to that yet, though, has it? It hasn't come to that here in BC, but I have heard from some of my colleagues in the Canadian Impaired Driving Lawyers Association who've been uh, faced with cases now that have come as a result of this, and they're very concerned about the reliability of the results and the device. Interesting stuff. So back to your group at the Acumen Law Group, you're, you and Paul and your colleagues, uh, you are busy. So are, are the roadside tests that you're receiving calls from potential clients about, are they they're blowing into the old breathalyzers or are they just doing, you know, the touch your nose with your finger and walk the line business? So uh, a little bit of both. A lot of people are calling about random breath testing. So being pulled over and asked to provide a breath sample with no grounds whatsoever. Mm. Um, and uh a bunch of people are coming to us now who've been made to do the roadside field sobriety test to check for drug impairment. We're seeing an uptick in the number of those cases. Now, do they tell you when they pull you over that we're, we're, we're suspicious here and we're going to put you through a series of rudimentary tests because we think you're impaired by cannabis? Do, yes. they, do, they, do they have to say that? Yes, they do. It's part of a demand that they're required to read to the driver that communicates to them the reason why they're being detained, which okay. is the officer has a suspicion they have a drug in their body. Oh, okay. So, and that has to be made clear to you before you get out of your vehicle and agree. I guess you don't have any a choice to agree or disagree with the taking of the test business, right? That's correct. If you refuse to participate in the test, you will land yourself a refusal charge. Okay. And is refusing to take the touch your nose and walk the line test equal in law, Kyla, to refusing to take a breathalyzer? Yes. And the penalty on conviction is a $2,000 fine and a one-year driving prohibition and a criminal record. Really? Yes. So Just, it's a very significant penalty. So what then, um, and it used to be, this is the big difference. It used to be before you got pulled over, uh, the officer who pulled you over had to be reasonably convinced that the irregular driving pattern or whatever, that person had have, had to have grounds of suspicion that you might be impaired. They don't have to articulate any of that stuff now, do they? No, for roadside breath testing, all they have to have is a lawful traffic stop. So they have to lawfully stop you and they have to have the breathalyzer with them. And so long as those two conditions are met, they can force you to provide a sample of your breath into a roadside breathalyzer. It's interesting. I spent a few days in Toronto this week. And of course, there was a story back there about a guy who took back a bunch of empty beer bottles to uh, an outlet for, he was just turning them in for a few dollars. And because, and that alone was provocation enough for a police officer to pull the guy over and and put him through the the, the basics of the test. Now, it was early in the morning. It, it was, he was taking, this is post-holidays, and we all accumulate a bunch of bottles and junk that we just sort of put away into a corner. One day after the holidays, we throw them all in the trunk and get rid of them. That was his day. And so he got pulled over and for having empties in his trunk. Yes, and we're seeing a lot of that. A lot of uh, officers stopping people for reasons that you wouldn't see them stopping people for before, um, solely with the goal of exercising this new power that the criminal code has given them. And um, will there be, I, I guess there's no restraint possible at this point because it's just so new. 
Yes. And the courts haven't defined what the limitations are on these powers beyond what's set out in the criminal code, which is really nothing at all. And so it's going to take several years before we really know whether these completely random traffic stops followed by completely random breath tests are lawful and what limitation there is on the police power to exercise those authorities. Now, you and I have been talking about all of this for a long time, including many months before it all came to pass. This is how how long we've been on this particular file. And I can recall at least six months before implementation, you sitting across from the desk me as, as you are now going, I know more than a few lawyers who are just absolutely itching at an opportunity to give a constitutional challenge to this stuff. Okay, so now it's in. We've had a little bit of time for incidents and events to occur. Has anyone, perhaps yourself or a colleague, taken up that constitutionality challenge of all this business? Not in court. And it's the unfortunate way that our justice system works is we don't get to test these laws immediately when they come into effect. We have to wait for the file to make it to court, which can be, you know, four to six weeks at the earliest. Oh, so you just can't challenge it in principle then? No, um, unless you have public interest standing, which is hard to get. So Mm -hmm. um, generally, we have to just wait for a client to be affected by it, wait for it to be a good test case, and then take that to the court. And because of the nature of um, impaired driving charges, they're heard in provincial courts. So we have to go through four levels of court to get through this to the Supreme Court of Canada before we get a decision that's binding across Canada. So this. this so you would have to have a case in which a person was convicted in British Columbia Provincial Court. The next step would be the Supreme Court of BC. The conviction is upheld. Okay, well, let's let's go to the appeal court. They'll they'll turn. They'll be on my team. Not a chance. You're rejected by all three. Then and only then the door is open to go to the Supreme Court. Yes, and the Supreme Court of Canada can refuse to hear the case. I mean, it's not likely with such a significant change in the law that they will, but they do have the right to refuse to hear something and to say, you know what, we're not going to hear this case. Interesting stuff. Is this expensive? From the point of view of a client, Kyla, who on their way home from the movies tonight gets pulled over, um, under used to be under suspicion of impairment. Now they just get pulled over and they get put through the third degree. Uh, and they, they pass the test or they flunk the test. Let's say they flunk the test for whatever reason. And then they call you just to get through the process of, 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 uh, of unwinding this charge and all the rest of it, how much is it going to cost a person? Uh, well, it depends on how far they take it, but the fees can vary. I mean, I think our fees are very reasonable <laughs> at our office. Um, but if you're looking at, at legal fees to run a constitutional challenge and you're paying out of pocket, you, you could be looking at tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, our office wants to run the challenge to the random breath testing and to the cannabis laws, and, and we intend to do it pro bono. Um, with the cannabis laws, there's been some funding committed from outside sources to support that. Um, so we're hoping to be able to advance this and not have to wait for somebody who's able to fully fund a challenge. Ah, so, but what you do need, however, is a case that you're confident would represent the kind of challenge the Supreme Court would have to go, well, we're going to have to take a minute and think about this stuff. Yes, exactly. It can't be, you know, just the first case that walks through the door, because if you have somebody who doesn't have the right set of facts, the old saying goes, bad facts make bad law. Right. And we want to make good law and use our resources in a pro bono way to benefit as many people as possible. But, you know, I was talking to you, I, I saw, uh, I was looking at some some uh, some press releases and doing some homework in advance of your appearance, which causes me 
me always to do tons of homework. Uh, one of the other networks reporting out of the, off the prairies. Now, the Mounties, the headline is, New Impaired Driving Laws Taking Drunk Drivers Off the Road, say the RCMP. And uh, no mention of cannabis in that particular headline. So uh, are they as aggressively pursuing cannabis impairment as they always have for alcohol? No. And part of the reason for that is not as many officers are trained to do the aggressive enforcement of cannabis impaired driving. They don't have the training to do the standardized field sobriety tests. There aren't as many drug recognition evaluation officers as they had intended. Mm -hmm. And our forensic labs are completely backlogged already prior to legalization. And so to get the results from a blood test takes a long period of time. Oh, okay. So it's, it's strictly, it's logistics as much as anything else. Yes. Interesting. So um, as far, though, as, as what I wanted to ask you this, I thought about this on the train coming in. And look at the big picture for me. On an annual basis, individuals charged with impairment, what's the percentage of men versus women? It's statistically generally been more men, about two-thirds men and one-third women. I Although, wasn't sure about that. I thought it was worth asking. Yeah, we have seen, though, in the last 15 to 20 years, more women, and that number is slowly cre- creeping up to be equivalent. Um, there have been a lot of, actually, social science studies into why that is, and a lot of it has to do with sort of the um, the advances we're making in society towards you know equalization between men and women and sure. the strides that women are making are putting more women in the workforce, more more women out drinking in bars at night, more women um, out on the road driving. And so we're seeing more women charged with impaired driving now than we were 15 or 20 years ago. You were talking about how few officers, relatively speaking, are trained up in the these programs, the drug recognition expert, and there's one other one, the, a similar program. Standardized field sobriety test. That's the one. So at where are they in terms of uh, manpower and appropriate numbers of trained personnel versus where they need to be? I think right now the last numbers I heard, they're about 75% of the way there. Okay. So it's Is that not now bad. here in BC or pretty much across the board? Across Canada. Okay. Um, but they were hoping to have at least two officers on every shift who were trained to do the drug recognition evaluation for every uh, police department and RCMP detachment, which if you think about how many there are just in British Columbia alone, is a huge number of officers who need to have this extensive training. Is this device, back to this Draeger 5000, is this the one where they take the swab uh, from the inside of your mouth and then insert it into the machine and then five to ten minutes later there's a reading? Is that what this machine, it's not an actual breathalyzer blow into this, right? No, there is a company in California that's working on developing a cannabis breathalyzer. Really? And they are doing some field tests with that, as I understand. So we may see that technology coming into Canada in the future. Um, And one of the great things about legalization both here and in certain United States is that there is now this opportunity to develop these things and to test them in more real-world settings with people who are frequent users of cannabis. And whoever comes up with the appropriate breathalyzer, none of this swabbing business, a breathalyzer like the alcohol unit, it gives you a reading immediately. Whoever comes up with that that becomes universally accepted, boy, stock in that company is going to go right to the moon, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. The first person to come up with something that's effective, quick and easy to use, and produces reliable results is going to be making a lot of money. We've got a couple of cases to talk to you about, including the dog who couldn't quite sit down. It was a 
fentanyl bust. I mean, it's kind of cute and, and, and you smile a little bit. But, of course, there was an enormous amount of fentanyl that fortunately has been confiscated. At least that part we're firm on. Kyla Lee is in studio. Kyla is a defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Group here in Vancouver. We're going to open up our phone lines. We'll take a break for the news at the bottom of the hour. And when we come back, we'll include your calls here on Vancouver Consumer. You want to reserve a line? Jump on 604-280-9898. We're back after the news. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer for Saturday afternoon. Sterling Fox with you on CKNW, joined in studio by Kyla Lee, criminal defense lawyer with Vancouver's Acumen Law Group. And they're available, by the way, online at acumenlaw.ca. Acumen, A-C-U-M-E-N. Uh, we had a call from a fellow. Uh, lines are open, by the way, friends. 604-280-9898. And when our first caller, Andrew, passed it along because he said he didn't want to be on the radio, Kyla. But he did want to know about degrees of impairment. Because in BC, we, there's some confusion. We, there's an 08 standard of impairment, and then there's the 05. So what's up with that, and which works? How does it work? So if you blow a 0.05, um, which is essentially a warn on a roadside breathalyzer, you'll get a three-day driving prohibition or a seven-day or a 30-day if it's your second or third time. If you blow 0.08, the police have one of two options. They can either give you a 90-day roadside prohibition and end it right there, or they can take you back to the police station, do further breath testing, and you can face criminal charges based on the results of those further tests. Ah, so again, when you're in a situation like this, you don't, you, the person who's just been pulled over, you don't have any option here, do you? You can't even call your lawyer. Are, do, you, do they allow you to call your lawyer? No, they don't. There's a suspension of your right to counsel for roadside breath testing because the Supreme Court of Canada has said it's supposed to take place quickly and it's supposed to be non-intrusive and it's supposed to be done in a way that's not going to punish you. We don't see that in British Columbia anymore. So it's a very difficult circumstance for a lot of people because they're made to provide a sample and they don't have the right to talk to a lawyer and if they fail the test or get a warning on the test they're going to be punished for that interesting stuff so the 08 is the more severe obviously it's the greater degree of impairment so the consequences are greater but 05 that'll get you a three-day suspension yes Okay, and is there a fine involved with that as well? Yes, there's a $200 fine plus a $250 license reinstatement fee at the end of the suspension. And do they take your card? So would there be an impoundment fee on top of that too? For the .05, the impoundment is discretionary, so they may take your card, they may not. Okay. Oh, so it could run up pretty uh, pretty quickly into the hundreds of dollars, though. You can get close to $1,000 for a three-day prohibition. Interesting stuff. Uh, to the phones we go, and to John and Langley. Thank you for waiting, John. Good afternoon. Oh, hi. Um, actually, I was uh, hoping to speak about the uh, the dog. Yes. Know, sitting. Okay, well, first of all, there's like over 20,000 people dead from fentanyl, and this judge is worried about if a dog is sitting half down or sitting down. That is disgusting. That he is disgraced to the what we expect is the people out here to try to protect the. Uh, uh, not that we're not supposed to be protecting the drug dealers. We're supposed to be protecting the people that are dying. This this is a travesty. 
All right, John, I appreciate your call and, and your, your passion. And I thank you for waiting and, and sharing it with us. Kyla, just back us up a little bit. Uh, to, and, and a lot of people already know what John's talking about. This is, but give us the facts of the case. And you've actually argued in front of this judge before. You know this individual. Yes. And uh, the, essentially what happened in this case was um, a man was pulled over um, and the officer began to suspect that he was involved in drug trafficking. There was a number of indicia to him, multiple cell phones, multiple air fresheners in the vehicle. He was acting suspiciously. And so the officer uh, brought his dog along to do a sniffer test. When police have a suspicion that somebody's involved in criminal activity, they're allowed to use a sniffer dog. The dog walked around the vehicle, gave an indication that was ambiguous in that it only sat about half to a quarter of the way down, then stood up again. And the officer on the basis of that thought, you know what, I'm going to take that as a positive indication. Mm -hmm. He took the guy's vehicle, towed it to a repair shop where they took it apart. They looked for something, they found nothing. And then as they were putting it back together, he noticed Bondo in one of the uh, door pockets of the vehicle. So took the wheel off and behind the wheel located a large quantity of fentanyl. Ah, okay. And this, of course, is what John is pointing to. It's not pot, folks. It's fentanyl. It is deadly, deadly stuff. Yes. And there was, I think, 27,500 doses of fentanyl in the vehicle. Um, But what was really interesting in this case wasn't so much the lack of of sitting by the dog, but the officer's testimony at the trial, which was that absent the dog sitting down and giving the indication, he would have had no grounds whatsoever to take the vehicle to conduct further investigation and the man would have been set free. Right. So, so but so the but the partial indicator was what sealed the deal against the the dog as a reliable witness if you will. Yes. And the reason why it's so important that a partial indicator not be used by an officer for such significant uh, intrusion into somebody's individual liberty and their privacy is because sniffer dog tests are only done on the basis of a suspicion. So you don't have the reasonable and probable ground standard. You've got, you know, an inkling in your mind that something is happening. And because that standard is so low, compliance with it has to be very, very well done. Gotcha. Now, please... Put John and me and everyone else listening to rest. They at least confiscated the fentanyl. Oh, absolutely. At the end of a criminal trial, you don't get offense. You don't get your drugs back if you you are acquitted. No, you get things that aren't illegal back, but you do not get illegal items back. So the fentanyl will either be completely destroyed or most of it will be destroyed and some may be used for testing or education by the RCMP. Um, But it's it's not going back in the hands of anybody accused of the criminal activity and it's not going back on the streets. Now, John John was all on about the judge and he thought it was a bit soft-headed of him to not to, to let this guy walk. But that you're saying that the officer in presenting his testimony kind of sealed the deal for himself, didn't he? Yes, exactly. Had he not answered the question that way, had he not indicated that he had nothing else to go on other than this, you know, half or quarter sit, um, there may have been more to say that the officer was acting in good faith and that the evidence was ultimately admissible and that maybe there was a breach, but it was only technical. Uh, The judge didn't find that in this case because of the officer's testimony. Interesting. By the way, in public areas like airports and train stations and so on, when you see a dog that isn't wearing, you know, a guide dog vest or anything like that, is it reasonable to assume that's a working dog? 
Yes, absolutely. The police will be in because public- they all they're not all German shepherds anymore, are they? No, they have all sorts of different dogs, and uh, they will take them out to public areas and allow them to walk around and give indications. So, if you are doing something illegal, don't do it in a public place. Well, I remember I, I took a cruise down to Florida uh, a few years ago, and, the, and just before the, 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 everybody was allowed on on the boat, they had all the suitcases all out in the parking lot, all neatly arranged, you know, as to floor and, and all of that kind of stuff and before anybody did anything they turned a few dogs loose and just let them run up and down up and down up and down over all those suitcases and only after the dogs cleared the area were they allowed to load and and off we went for our little junket in the caribbean Wow. And, you know, our law recognizes reduced expectations of privacy in certain places. You have obviously the highest expectation of privacy in your body and in your home, uh, a reduced expectation in your motor vehicle, although not uh, eliminated, a reduced expectation at borders or at train stations or places of travel. What is the criminal code, uh, and I'm trying to remember chapter and verse, and you would because you've had to probably memorize it all, but with respect to a person's right when it comes to search and seizure, and is a breath test or does a breath test qualify as a search? Yes, so it's under the Charter, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 8, guarantees the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. And the courts have determined that a breath test searches your body for and seizes a sample of your breath. And even though you're naturally expelling your breath, it's not naturally expelled into a breathalyzer and then analyzed. Okay, so that does constitute, in, in, in law, a search. Yes. In fact, Section 8 of the Charter has been interpreted by the courts as expansive enough to cover searches that include roadside prohibitions. So when our roadside prohibition law was found unconstitutional initially in 2011, mm-hmm. it was because it violated Section 8 of the Charter, even though it's not what you would ordinarily think of as a search in law. So what modifications did we have to make back uh, seven or eight years ago so that it did um, fall in with the law? There had to be more opportunity for people to challenge the results of the search. Oh, okay. So to say that um, the results were not reliable or that a proper process wasn't followed, and that was all added into the legislation afterwards. Is the introduction of cannabis into the spectrum of items to be searched for or items that can cause people to be impaired, is that doubling, trebling? Is it making the work of law enforcement that much more difficult? Or did they have enough time, given that we were leading up to it with much fanfare for about a year, to be ready for it? They certainly had enough time to be ready for it. And from what I saw in the you know, months and and then weeks leading up to legalization, nothing was done for a long period of time. And it was a big scramble in the home run stretch. But the police had ample notice from the time the Liberal government was elected that cannabis was going to become legal. And they needed to start taking steps right away to deal with that even before it was legalized. They didn't do that. And we shouldn't have to pay the price. It is throwing a wrench in uh, policing across this country. A lot of police officers used to look for things like the smell of cannabis. Sure. from a vehicle, of and now you can be lawfully in possession of it, so it doesn't give you grounds to detain somebody or search their vehicle. Ah, oh, okay. So, but if uh, I guess still, though, there would be a difference between a person carrying a joint in their pocket and the smell of smoke in a, in a there would be a distinguishable difference, right? Yes, the smell of burnt cannabis right. versus the smell of fresh cannabis right. is going to be where these cases hinge often in, in whether they give the officers grounds to investigate further. And it's very interesting interesting because it used to be that fresh cannabis allowed you to investigate further and burned cannabis usually didn't. Right, because it was the fresh cannabis. They were after trafficking and that sort of thing, right? Yes. 
And now that's sort of been flipped because if you have the smell of fresh cannabis, you could just have something you purchased at the government store legally right. a few minutes ago in your car that smells. I want to just run this one by you. Um, this is our friends at Global News put this one together a week or so ago. And the headline was, should parents lock up their pot? Probably lawyers warn and then it goes on to talk about well obviously the story is fairly self-explanatory by the by the headline if negligent parents leave cannabis products out so that they can be consumed by children that is a crime, is it not, in Canadian law? It is, potentially. Making your cannabis products accessible to your children could uh, leave you with a charge for providing them to your children, depending on how openly accessible they are and the age of your children. And if your children are young enough that they don't know the difference between you know, a regular brownie and a pot brownie, yeah, yeah. then they, you could face charges of criminal negligence if your child is becomes sick or injured or, or ill or, you know, God forbid, has some type of adverse reaction and dies. Dies, mm-hmm. um, from cannabis use. Now, this would also apply across the board to, uh, to liquor. Yes, oh, but, absolutely. But this is why we have the liquor cabinet up top where the kids can't get to it. It's high and if necessary, it gets locked. So if we're okay with the liquor cabinet, why can't we transfer that same mentality to cannabis products? We should be able to. It's not different at all. And most parents um, who have liquor in the house have conversations with their children, even starting from a very young age. Mm-hmm. This is off limits. This is adults only. Don't touch the alcohol. And then when they're teenagers, you'll get in a lot of trouble if you take my alcohol. Yeah, right, right. Um, and, and so as parents, we already, I mean, I'm not a parent, but parents already know how to have these conversations. It's just a matter of making those conversations not just about alcohol, but also about cannabis. Are there laws anywhere in Canada with respect to storage? I know in BC, it's not like guns where you have to do this and it has to be locked up and this and that. They're very, very strict protocols. Uh, Are there any Canadian jurisdictions that have specific storage requirements for cannabis products? Yes, some provinces have made it a part of their cannabis acts to have specific requirements about how cannabis is to be stored in homes to make sure that it's not accessible to children or to make sure that it's kept safe. I don't think that the government needs to go that far. We don't need the government parenting parents. Um, what we need is parents to use common sense when it comes to anything in the house that mm-hmm. could pose a danger to a child. Okay. And, of course, the same thing with animals, right? I mean, I can remember back in the 60s. Uh, let's get the cat stone. <laughs> I mean, oh, come on. Reed. All you do is scare, just scare the poor little creature just half to death. It is so unusual and so wrong. Uh, and uh, But is there, uh, are there, is, are there any negative consequences attached to interfering with animals? Yes, absolutely. Every province has uh, different prevention of cruelty legislation. Um, and if you were to cause unnecessary suffering to an animal, including by administering a noxious substance, cannabis or alcohol or whatever the case sure, may be, yeah. you could be charged and you could face even up to six months jail for something like that. Interesting stuff. Now, when do you think, I'm sure there's a pool somewhere that you criminal defense lawyers each contribute a buck or two. When do you think the first constitutional challenge to all of this is going to come? Because uh, the, the the consensus as I'm hearing it across the spectrum from my colleagues in the media is this could be a little too much. We may have given the guys with the badge and the gun a little too much power this time around. 
I, yeah, I agree with you that we probably will see something very soon. Um, perhaps maybe in the next 30 days. And really? That's all I'll say about that. Oh, my. Oh, so there, there's a possibility something could come out of British Columbia in the next a short while. A very strong possibility. Interesting. And I would imagine this is not the only jurisdiction in the country in which there are lawyers going, oh, well, come on, for crying out loud, somebody, somebody step up there first. But again, you need the right set of circumstances, right? You need a good case. You need a good case. You need a client who's willing to have that notoriety too, because you, whoever is going to be the person that's challenging this is going to be the center of a, a media spotlight. That's right. There'll be lots of social media bashing and all of that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. You have to be able to have thick skin and withstand people calling you, you know, scum or whatever words people love to use on social media for being a drunk driver. Oh, okay. Well, you're being very kind. <laughs> it gets really foul and nasty really fast over there on social media. It does. Kyla, I'm fresh out of time. I thank you for yours as always. It's lovely to have you come in. It's really, uh, there's so much to get to wrap your head around with all of this new stuff that every chance we get to have you come by and go, okay, here's the real deal. Uh, it's hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group, acumenlaw.ca, should you require to avail yourself of Ms. Lee's services at any point down the road. We're back after this. And once again, our thanks to criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group for a most informative visit. Thanks for your calls, too. Next hour, John Carlson is back with a fresh Vancouver Market real estate update. Time now for Dooley Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, has a look at the new Provincial Health Report. Thanks, Sterling. BC's top doctor says instances of diabetes, mortality due to preventable causes, smoking during pregnancy, and hepatitis C all continue to decrease in the province. Dr. Bonnie Henry released a report on Friday showing the overall health of British Columbians is pretty good. Henry did point out some trends that are concerning to her. Binge drinking has gone up in uh, young women and men of reproductive age, and that is concerning. Children learning about healthy eating in schools has gone down. Sometimes it's just availability. Certainly in some parts of this province, it's a challenge to get fresh fruit and vegetables in the, in the winter. The report includes seven recommendations. One of the recommendations is developing and implementing a health promotion strategy. Henry is also calling for an increase in support for government programs that focus on health among women, children, youth, and families. The report also includes a recommendation to increase the focus on illness and injury prevention as well as health promotion for people living in rural and remote areas. The impacts of increased alcohol consumption and of the opioid overdose crisis were two challenge areas identified in the report. Henry said a review of the provincial alcohol policy and the impact of the opioid overdose crisis will be looked at in detail in another report. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thanks, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. Travelers need to know a lack of air traffic controllers has caused chaos along the U.S. eastern seaboard. A ground stop at LaGuardia Airport in New York has been lifted yesterday, but delays have been reported after the FAA halted all flights in arriving from LaGuardia yesterday for about an hour. The disruptions underscored the impact of the government shutdown, which on its 35th day mercifully was lifted yesterday for, well, at least a three-week reprieve. Still, it will take some time before federal workers are all back on side and on the job. 
A rising number of federal employees have been calling in sick as a sign of protest for not being paid during the shutdown. So again, this affects air traffic and has all week. And travelers heading to the center of the universe this weekend may also expect delays caused by blizzards and extreme winter conditions in Toronto that could affect traffic at Pearson International Airport. As always, the advice is to check with your airline before even leaving the house. That is our look at some of the stories of the top consumer ones, at least, that we're following this week. We'll have a few more for you in our next hour here on Vancouver Consumer, which is produced by Ben Dooley. Andrew Ferreira is at the controls. We value your feedback and appreciate your thoughts and comments. And if you have any suggestions for the show, send them along to us at sterling at cknw.com, or you can tweet them to us at Van Consumer. We read everything we get. We're back after the news with John Carlson from 1% Realty with a fresh Vancouver Market real estate update. Stay with us. This is CKNW, and you're listening to Vancouver Consumer. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.